The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A believer's life is confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just the sins we remember and confess, but every sin. The sins we did not know were sins. The sins that uh, we committed and we've forgotten that we committed. God cleanses us or purifies us from every single category of sin. Uh, consequent to that is the filling of the Holy Spirit who uh, enables us to understand the Word of God, stores it in our soul, enables us to recall it for application at critical times. Application of doctrine apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit is nothing more than human good and is uh, not conducive or productive for the spiritual life. So we always need to keep short accounts, make sure that we are in fellowship so that we have production by means of the Holy Spirit. With that, let's bow our heads together to open in prayer for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You so much for the absolute truth of Your Word, that it is reliable above all else, and that through the application of Your Word we can have and experience in our lives uh, just the incredible blessing that You have for us. We can develop capacity for life and for love and for happiness. And we can uh, glorify You. Fathers, we study Your Word this morning, the Gospel of John. I pray that You would help us to understand more clearly all that You have done in the provision of salvation for us, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that as we come to a greater understanding of our, of our salvation, that we might be motivated to greater pursuit of spiritual maturity. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 19. We have been studying the prologue or introduction to the Gospel of John for the last uh, three months. And we have finally concluded the prologue last week. The first 18 verses focus on the character of Christ as the Logos of God. The Word, reason, logic, all of which indicates Christ as the revealer of God. The point of the introduction is what John says in verse uh, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld Him, we saw Him, we touched Him, we heard Him. We beheld His glory. Not the incredible glory of the Mount of Transfiguration for John, who was one of the participants there, along with Peter and James, doesn't even refer to that episode in his Gospel. So the glory of God, the glory of Christ rather, in the Gospel of John has to do with His revealing Himself in the day-to-day actions of meeting the needs of people. We beheld His glory. Glory is of the unique, uniquely begotten One from the Father full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that is the Logos of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He, Jesus Christ, is the exegete, the revealer of God the Father. And so John begins his Gospel. Back at the very beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he begins his Gospel presentation as we should with God. That is always the starting point. Unfortunately, today we live in an era that is governed by principles of psychotherapy, such that one church historian 
labels this the psychotherapeutic age, the therapy age, where we focus on the Bible in terms of relationship and we want God to start where man is rather than man starting with God. And so we're always, the, the, the tendency in Christianity is always to water down the gospel. And the, and the tendency in our age is to water everything down. I mean, we want to aim, and whether we're talking about education or economics or whatever, we're dumbing down our society and we want to aim everything at the lowest common denominator. And that is the socialist mentality. Figure out what the lowest common denominator is and bring everything down to that level. We, we therefore get away, we call any pursuit of excellence elitism, don't we, in our society. Nobody wants to be to excel. Nobody wants to uh, distinguish themselves and somehow as being, being unique. That somehow if you, are, if you excel in business, you go out and you have a good idea and you start a company and you excel and you make, make millions and millions of dollars that you ought to be penalized for that because you have exercised your initiative and your responsibility and you, you've excelled above everybody else and we can't really have that. It's okay to do, do, have a little success, but we need to keep everybody equal. So we're going to take away all that you have worked hard for, that you had the initiative for, and we're going to give it to somebody else. And that's just raw socialism. It has nothing to do with freedom, nothing to do with the Bible, and it is dominating all kinds of thought, whether we're talking politics or education or the Christian life. So we want to water everything down. You see this in gospel presentations uh, where you don't even want to talk about sin or salvation anymore, that all you have to do is somehow trust Jesus. And there's no content given to the meaning of trust and no content to the meaning of Jesus just as long as you feel like you have had, uh, you know who Jesus is, brother, and Jesus is, is real to you, then, then you can have a relationship with God. And they get everything absolutely backwards. And one of the promises that I want to make to you as a congregation that we won't ever let that happen here. We're going to take a stand for excellence, for professionalism, and always doing everything to the best that we can. And that includes... Uh, maintaining the line of doctrinal purity. We're never going to water down doctrine in order to make sure that we can get more people here because we're not going to, we're going to make sure we don't offend somebody. That happens in so many churches that, uh, well, we don't want to teach the Bible in too much depth because, because people won't come. They might be afraid that somehow we're teaching over their head and it might be an insult to their intelligence or we might say something that, that uh, hurts them or that, that offends them in their life. So we just want to make sure they're going to get to heaven. And so they compromise truth at every single level. And we're just not going to let that happen here. We're going to maintain the line of doctrinal, doctrinal purity and stick with what the Bible says. And so we come to the second session. Of John, where John moves from talking about who Jesus was in terms of his relationship to God to the presentation of the Lagos to the nation Israel. The presentation of the Lagos. Now, never again will John use the word Lagos in this gospel. Isn't that interesting? He develops this prologue where he spends all of his time developing this theological concept. But then he's going to spend the rest of the gospel telling us exactly what that means, what, uh, defining Jesus as the revealer of God. And this begins in 119, and the presentation of the Lagos to the nation Israel extends down through the end of chapter 12. So that's the next major division of the gospel. The first part of this, we would, if we were outlining this, we would say Roman numeral 1 was this uh, uh, prologue. Roman numeral 2 would be the presentation of the Logos from 119 to 1250. And under that, we would have A, four days in the life of John the Baptist. Four days in the life of J.B., John the Baptist, as opposed to J.A., John the Apostle. Must keep those separate. Too many Johns running around. Four days in the life of John the Baptist, beginning in 119, going down through the end of chapter, uh, uh, chapter 1, uh, 151. 119 to 151 describe four days in the life of John the Baptist. And really what we have is down through the end of chapter 2, 
we have the first week in the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is a week that has impressed itself indelibly on the mind of John the Apostle. Remember, John the Apostle was in his 90s when he wrote this, this gospel. He was living in Ephesus. He had pastored in that church for a number of years. He had been imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos where he wrote uh, Revelation. And I think he wrote the Gospel of John at, at the very end of his life. Now, there's a lot of scholarly disagreement over that. Um, it doesn't matter much doctrinally whether he wrote it before or after uh, Revelation. It has no real implications one way or the other. I think, though, that it was the last thing. So this is the product of mature thought. That's the point. Uh, whether he wrote it in 90 A.D. or 95 A.D., uh, it's still the product of an old man who has reflected upon these things for years and upon those, those three marvelous years that he had uh, in, with the ministry, uh, the public ministry of our Lord and listening to Him and watching Him and watching how He related to people and everything He did so that we get a portrait of our Lord in the Gospel of John that is very intimate. It's very much, we, very much we see the person of Jesus and in terms of some of his more intimate relationships. And when you think about it, this man is 90 years old when he's writing this, and yet he goes back very specifically to a period of seven days that occurred when he was probably in his late teens, maybe 18 or 19, maybe early 20s, 20 or 21, but definitely very young. And he remembers precisely what happened on each day. Because on the third day in this chain of events, something happened. Something so phenomenal happened in his life that he remembers the exact hour in which it occurred. And that was that he met the Messiah personally. And it changed his life forever. So he remembers this, this week and he remembers the events of this week. And if you look at the uh, kind of as an overview of John 1, 19 and following, it begins in verse 19, and this is the witness of John. And then we look down to verse 29 that says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him. And then we look at verse, that would be day 2. Then we look at verse 35. Again, the next day. So that's day 3. John was standing with two of his disciples. And then we come down to verse 43. The next day, he purposed to go forth into Galilee. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it reads, And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, why all this emphasis on chronology? We have day one, day two, day three, day four, and then there's two days. And on the third day, which would be day seven, the completion of a week, we have the wedding in Cana. So he's very precise about his chronology. Well, one of the things that we learn here uh, from extra-biblical sources, the Mishnah was the right, uh, encompassed the writings of the uh, Jewish rabbis and their various traditions. And from the Mishnah, we learned that a wedding was either on a Wednesday or Thursday, according to uh, Jewish practice. If it was a widow remarrying, then the wedding was on a Thursday. But if it was the first-time wedding and the woman was a virgin, then it is on a Wednesday. So what we can conclude from this is that on a Wednesday, Jesus and the disciples went to the wedding at Cana. So if this is Wednesday, we back off of that Tuesday and Monday were travel days. Sunday is the fourth day. And Saturday, let me see if I've got this right, Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Monday, Sunday, Saturday, Friday, and Thursday. And so it is on the third day, on a Sabbath, that John the Apostle, meets the Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time. And we learn from that passage that it was about the tenth hour. That's down in... Um, what verse was that? Down in verse 39. For it was about the tenth hour, which is 4 p.m., about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, on a Saturday in the spring of the year, 
John remembers the exact time that he met the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to give us the summation here in this, the rest of the chapter of this week. The first week in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begins in verse 19. And this is the witness of John. With all this wind up here, I can't keep my pages from blowing around, Jim. Can you turn that down a little bit, please? And this is the witness of John. Now, we have seen that there are various witnesses in the Gospel of John. John writes the Gospel for one purpose. In John 20:31, he said, In these signs, there were seven signs in the Gospel. These signs are written to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And signs are composed of these are witnesses on the one hand and then he also marshals seven other specific witnesses that give testimony to who and what Jesus Christ is so the overall concept underlying the book is that of a courtroom and he's going to establish a principle on trial Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's establish that. Let's call forth our witnesses to come up to the witness stand and give their testimony about who Jesus Christ was and what He did. And the first witness we're going to call to the stand is John the Baptist. The word here for witness is the word martyreo, which means, which is a very legal term and refers to someone who provides evidence, who functions in the role of a legal witness in a courtroom. Now, as a witness, he's going to present physical facts, historical facts, biographical facts, in order to provide information so that we can believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. You see, faith always has an object. And that object can be expressed as a rational proposition. Faith is not irrational, as the critics would have you believe, but faith is based on certain evidence. It has something that it apprehends, something that it focuses on. It always has some facts or some proposition as its object. When faith is in faith, that is mysticism and subjectivity, and it is irrational. And that so often is the faith offered in so many churches today, is just believe. And you're never told what to believe in, just as long as you have faith in something. And that's an empty faith that will get you nowhere. But that's not John's concept of faith. These are written that you might believe something. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life through His name. So we're going to establish the principle that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, Jesus did not have the name Jesus Christ. Jesus the first name and Christ His last name. If He had a name, He went by, it was Yeshua ben Yosef. Jesus, the son of Joseph. Messiah is the Old Testament title, Mashiach. For the Anointed One. The New Testament title or translation of the Hebrew is Christos, from which we get our word Christ. It is a title of related to His role as the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. So He is going to demonstrate this principle that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you will have life, eternal life, eternal salvation. Nowhere in John do you get any indication that there's anything necessary for salvation other than belief. If the Gospel of John is written to get you from to heaven to spend eternity with God the Father in everlasting happiness in heaven, then it's very clear it doesn't require works. You don't learn anything about uh, any kind of extra requirement, obedience to the law, circumcision, being baptized, anything else. It is simply faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. And this is the testimony of John the Baptist. So John the Apostle calls his first witness 
to validate his claims about the gospel. And this is the testimony. We might translate it, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, if you look down a couple of verses to verse 24, we find a little bit find out a little bit more about this group. Now they, that is this group of priests and Levites, had been sent from the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were one of two major religious political parties dominating, or religious parties that dominated the politics of Judea at the time. There were the Pharisees on the one hand and the Sadducees on the other hand. The Pharisees are the religious conservatives and they emphasize morality and strict obedience to the letter of the Mosaic Law. The Sadducees are the religious liberals. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in a resurrection life. Someone has said that's why they're sad, you see. You'll always remember that. The Sadducees are the liberals. They uh, just believe in a general observance of the Mosaic Law, not a specific uh, obedience. The Pharisees are comprised of a number of different people, but even among their groups, although most priests were Sadducees, there were some conservative priests and Levites who were part of their, their group. And it is this group of priests and Levites that are sent out from among the Pharisees in order to evaluate John the Baptist and his ministry. Now, why is that necessary? Well, under the regulations of the Mishnah, it was necessary for a uh, formal commission to go out and evaluate the claims of anyone who might be the Messiah. So this is the, the background here. They're sending out a group a preliminary committee to evaluate his claims and to see if indeed he is the Messiah. Now, the reason they sent out priests and Levites was because of John the Baptist's background. Remember, his family is a Levitical family. His father was Zechariah. And in Luke 1.5, we're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth both came from the tribe of Levi. And that Zechariah was one of the priests who functioned in the temple. And it was during his time when he, when he functioned in the holy place that, that he was, uh, had a, an angel appeared to him and, and, and told him that he would have a child. And his wife was past her age of childbearing. And that she would have his child would be, a, uh, therefore, a miraculous birth because uh, she was past her childbearing years. And he didn't really believe it, so the angels struck him dumb. And he didn't speak from that day until the day the child was born. But his father served in the temple priesthood, and so John grew up in, a, in an environment where the uh, priests would have known this story. They would have realized what had happened. It was common knowledge among the priests that Zechariah had gone into the temple that day and when he came out he couldn't talk and he was just amazed and he wrote out the message that an angel had appeared to him. And so these stories have been maintained and they're going to send a group of priests who would have some level of intimacy or knowledge with John and his claims and his family background to evaluate him. And so they come out and they want to ask him, first of all, who are you? What exactly do you claim to be? Are you claiming to be the Messiah or or what? What is going on out here? Now remember, John is a real loner. John operated in a district along the River Jordan. I've got to walk over here and get my map. Outside of Jerusalem, not on the beaten path. He did not go where the people were. He expected the people to come where he was. John is operating at this point, not too far from Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem on the map. Can you see that? Yes. Here's Jerusalem on the map here. And in this vicinity, just north of the Dead Sea, where I have this one dot here, a circle, it's in that general vicinity to the south east of Jericho that John the Baptist was uh, conducting his ministry at some at the earlier point, and then he moves north up the river, and he's probably in this vicinity. The last verse of this chapter tells us that he's in the vicinity of of Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, 
We, we don't know where that is anymore. This, this area existed at the time of Christ, but over the years disappeared, and we don't know where that is anymore, but it was over probably in this area somewhere. reason we say that is that if he was down here, it takes more than two days to travel up here to Cana. Cana is right about here where you see the Z in Nazareth, if you can see the Z in Nazareth. It's right up in this area, and it would take more than two days to travel up there. So it was the location of Bethany is generally agreed to be in this area. So word has gone out and shook the foundations of the religious community in Jerusalem that there's this wild-looking man out in the wilderness. He wears a camel's hair coat, not the kind of a camel's hair coat that you think of when you think of a camel's hair coat. Uh, just an old rough camel hide over his body, and he's and he eats uh, just the, the the food of the impoverished. He just eats locusts and honey, and he's not very social sociable. He doesn't run around with the crowds, the religious crowds in Jerusalem, and yet thousands of people are flocking out to hear this message that he is proclaiming, um, calling the people to repentance, that is, to change their mind about God. Repentance is a very important word to understand. Uh, too often today, when people use the word repent, it has an emotional connotation. To feel sorry for your sins. To feel sorry about something. But that's not what the word means in the original languages of the Greek. The word that the, that the Bible uses in the original is metanoieo. M-E-T-A-N-O-I-E-O. Noeo comes from the Greek nous, N-O-U-S, which is the mind or the thinking part of the soul. Meta means to change, so it's literally to change your thinking. There's another word for changing uh, your emotions and being emotional. Uh, metamelami, but this is not that word. This is metanoeo, which refers to changing your mind. And so he's calling them to account that they must evaluate their position spiritually, change their mind, and return back to a true obedience to God. And so hundreds of thousands, I mean, hundreds, perhaps thousands are coming out uh, to listen to John the Baptist, and he's baptizing them. And it's shaken the community, so they send out this investigative group to find out what's going on. And in verse 20, we read something that has implications in another arena that we'll discuss as well. And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, John the Apostle includes this very important statement because at his day and time, some 60 years later, there's still a group of people who are followers of John the Baptist and have sort of established a cult following And he is emphasizing here that John never intended that, that he recognized that he was not the Messiah and that his role was to point people to the Messiah. So he says John confessed and did not deny, and he confessed. Twice he mentions the fact that John confesses. Now this is another important word. Homo legeo. This is a rough breathing mark, so it's transliterated with an H. H H-O-M-O. L-O-G-E-O. Now, we find this word in another very important passage. In 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, If we, that is believers, confess our sins. Now, so many people take this word confess, and they've just loaded it with all sorts of religious baggage. So, when people think of confession in a religious context, spiritual context, they think of some kind of emotion. Emoting over, feeling guilty, feeling sorry for your sins, bargaining with God, promising God that you'll never do that again. And yet the context of 1 John 1, 9, we don't have time to go into it right now, but you see it in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, that where it talks about Jesus as an advocate. That's a legal term. He is our defense attorney. That you have a legal context there. The context of a courtroom. Jesus is defending us as our defense attorney. And we make a confession in court. And there we learn that that word simply must mean admission of guilt. doesn't mean feeling sorry for your sins. If it did, then our passage in John 1.20 would be meaningless. Think about it. 
And he felt sorry for his sins. And he emoted and felt guilty and did not deny. And he felt so bad that he wasn't Jesus and said, I am not the Christ. Now that wouldn't make very much sense, would it? So we see right there that homo legeo just can't have an emotional connotation to it. It has a legal sense, a very technical legal word for the legal admission of guilt or innocence by an accused party. And so John makes an admission here. That's the fundamental meaning of the word. And John uses it twice to make clear the point that John realizes that he is not the Messiah. He, and he admitted and did not deny. And he admitted, I am not the Christ. Well, now they have to sit back a little bit. You're not the Messiah. Well, we heard that you were claiming to be the Messiah. So, well, what do we do now? Well, let's go to the next bank of questions. If you're not the Messiah, then who are you? They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Notice how his answers get shorter and shorter. John just doesn't want to be distracted by all this this uh, evaluation and everything. He doesn't get caught up in a lot of conversation. He's not going to explain his answers in detail. He's, in fact, he just it's shorter and shorter and shorter. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Go away. Leave me alone. But they keep pressing him for information. They want to know who he is. You see, this was a time of incredible turmoil in Israel. And they had been under this uh, oppression from Rome. And there were people showing up every other week claiming to be the Messiah. The Jews, the religious leaders, had misinterpreted the Old Testament. And they were looking for a Messiah who was a political figure who would come and free them from the uh, uh, oppression of Rome and who would be a military conqueror. And, of course, there are many passages in the Old Testament that relate that to the Messiah. But that's what he will perform at the second coming. That was not his task at the first coming or at the first advent. And so they, they had uh, wrongly interpreted the Scriptures and they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. But there were many that still had an accurate perception of what the Messiah would be like. For example, further on in this chapter... When Jesus meets Nathanael, verse 49, Nathanael answers him and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So there were clearly those like Nathanael who understood that the Messiah would be the King of Israel and they were looking for the right kind of Messiah. Uh, another example of the messi- correct messianic expectations at this time is seen in the episode with the uh, woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verses 25. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So they knew that he would be a prophet, he would have a prophetic ministry, and he would know all things. And then in verse 29, when she runs into town to tell everybody about this unique man she has met out by the well who told her everything, she says, come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? In other words, this must be the Christ. That's the nuance of the Greek there. That he must be the Christ because he knows everything. So they had a messianic expectation that he was omniscient and would have a prophetic ministry. Furthermore, the messianic expectations of the time drove people to evaluate the Scriptures to see what they said about the Messiah. In John chapter 5, verses 39 and following, Jesus gives a little discourse to them, to the Jews, and He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of Me. And we have seen that the Scriptures are another of John's witnesses that he marshals to the witness stand to give testimony about Jesus Christ. He says, You search them because they bear witness of Me. Then in verse 45 of that discourse, He says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your confidence. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for he wrote of Me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe My words? So they 
had searched the Scriptures to see what Moses said about the Messiah, but they had negative volition and they rejected what Moses said. They did not accept those, Messian, those uh, Mosaic prophecies. Moses made it clear, but they rejected him. And because they rejected Moses, they would reject Jesus Christ. So there were clearly uh, those within Israel who had accurate Messianic expectations, but the majority had, had uh, Messianic expectations based upon erroneous concepts. Now, when these, uh, this commission then in verse 21 asks further questions of John, they say, are you Elijah? What do they mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, in Malachi 4-5, there is a prophecy that Elijah would come back at the end of the age. Malachi 4-5, God says to the Jews, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that's a term referring to that judgment period of the tribulation, that seven-year tribulation at the end of uh, following the church age that concludes the last seven years in the age of Israel that immediately precedes the 1,000-year rule rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Jesus Christ ends the tribulation when He returns bodily to the earth and touches down on the Mount of Olives. And the tribulation period is like the birth pangs that the earth goes through in giving birth to the perfect messianic era of the kingdom. And this is the part of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So there's a prophecy that before this this happens, Elijah is going to show up. Now remember when Jesus came, the first part of His ministry, He was offering the kingdom to the Jews. And theoretically, if they had been positive and accepted Him as their Messiah, then the kingdom could have come then. Remember, there's no prophecy related to the church age in the Old Testament. So it's a legitimate offer. But God in His omniscience knew it would be rejected and that Christ would be crucified. But nevertheless, it is a legitimate offer and they reject the kingdom. So John functions as a partial fulfillment of this Elijah prophecy. He comes, he dresses like Elijah, he has a ministry similar to Elijah, he has a personality that is similar to Elijah, and uh, if he had been accepted, if Christ had been accepted, then John could, would have functioned within this role uh, as, uh, of expectation as Elijah. They go on and ask a second question after he denies being Elijah. They said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. Now, this also relates to an Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Moses had written in Deuteronomy 18 that they could expect a great prophet from among them. The verse reads, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From among your countrymen you shall listen to him. So this is a prophet that there will be a great, great prophet arise. And then, and he would be so great that um, uh, God says in, in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And the Jews had always interpreted this verse to refer to a specific kind of prophet, a prophet greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah, greater than any Old Testament prophet. This was the prophet. And they realized that there was a connection between this prophet and the Messiah. Matthew 11, verse 13, Matthew tells us something about John the Baptist's ministry and says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. So you have this whole string of prophecies up to John the Baptist. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you care to accept Him, that is, Jesus as Messiah, if you care to accept Him, He Himself is Elijah, that is, John the Baptist, who was to come. But you don't accept Jesus, so John is not Elijah. Another thing we learn about John is that he, his, his personality 
was quite different. He was not the socially accepted personality. And you always discover that people tend to put pastors and ministers uh, uh, in terms of their uh, worship them almost in terms of a personality cult. They they tend to make personality an issue rather than the message. And the message is what matters, not the personality. There's all kinds of personalities. Uh, pastor teacher is a spiritual gift. And it's not confined or restricted to one particular type of personality. And, I'm, of course, I went to seminary with quite a number of men that had uh, uh, the gift of pastor-teacher, but they had all kinds of uh, personalities. Some were very extrovert and outgoing and friendly and backslapping. And uh, some were very introvertish men who preferred to just sit in the study all day and, and be scholars and all kinds of different men. Some who were had trends in the soul that were more lascivious and some that were more legalistic. But you just get all kinds of personalities. And John had a personality that, that bothered people and they focused on his personality. And Matthew 11:18, we see the criticism of John. For John came neither eating nor drinking. He was more of an ascetic. So they say that his followers fasted and they didn't uh, uh, partake of alcoholic beverage. That's what it means here. It doesn't mean they didn't drink anything. They would dehydrate and die in the desert. It means drinking alcoholic beverages, drinking wine. For John came neither eating nor drinking. That was part of his vows. Uh, and they said, he has a demon. So they rejected his personality. He's too ascetic. He can't be right. But then the Son of Man came. Jesus came. And Jesus was uh, much more socially acceptable. And He went to all the parties and was in the crowds with the people in Jerusalem. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He went to the banquets. And He partook of wine as He did at the wedding of Cana. And they accused Him. They said, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet... So we see here that, that they accuse, they make personality the issue rather than the content of the message. And we see that there was a vast difference between John and Jesus. Now the thing you need to learn is that the issue is the message, not the personality. If the message is correct, don't worry about the personality. You see that with people who come and walk into a church. They say, well, I, you know, I just don't like it. No, they don't like the personality of the church. It doesn't matter about the message. It doesn't matter about the content of the message. They make an issue out of some superficial aspect rather than the real issue of the church. And that's because a real issue of content of the Word and, and doctrine. And that's because most people in our era today are superficial. They don't look for in-depth teaching. They don't care about in-depth teaching. They just want to live life on a very, very superficial level. So John the Baptist was a loner. He operated out in the desert. And I tell you, I've been out in the desert a few times. When uh, About ten years ago, I took a youth group down to the Big Bend National Park in Texas. And before they arrived, I had about four days with a Jeep. And I got to drive all over the desert. Temperatures would get up to about 118, 120 degrees. And there's nobody out there. Now, the question you ought to ask yourself is if your job, you were commissioned by God to take a message of vital national, of vital importance to the nation, where would you go? Would you go to Washington, D.C.? Or would you go to the Chihuahuan Desert? Well, John's out in the middle of the Jordanian Desert preaching a message of national importance and the people who were positive to doctrine who truly wanted to know about God, came. He didn't buy into this mentality that's prevalent today that we need to make our churches acceptable to the unchurched and the unbeliever out there so when they come in, they'll be comfortable. See, that's the dominant thought in church growth mentality today. We need to make our churches a comfortable place for the unbeliever to come so they don't feel like they're uh, they're, they're being... Uh, singled out or anything or they have to sing songs they're not used to so since we don't want them to sing songs of a music style they're not familiar with let's take christian let's take all our music and write it and use use rock music and rap and all of this other stuff that has its origins plato said when a society changes when a culture changes the music changes what causes a culture to change it's their thought forms when they change their philosophical orientation. I don't have time to develop this now. I've got hours I could teach on this. 
When a culture changes its philosophical orientation, their music style changes. Music is not neutral, folks. I'm not talking about words. I'm talking about music. The kind of music that it was produced by a, by a Bach or a Handel or a Haydn is produced by a culture that has a mentality that there are absolutes and that there is order within that. But if you trace the philosophical shifts down through the 19th century and into the 20th century, you see that with each change of the philosophical or ideological orientation of Western civilization, the music changes. The romantic, the romantic movement of the early 19th century is exemplified in the romantic move, uh, music of Beethoven. And you can see it as it goes through the 19th century and you depart from from uh, a views of absolutes, you get the kind of random music of a, of, of a, of a Schopenhauer and, and others. And then you get on down into the, the rock music of our era. And this reflects certain philosophical assumptions about the nature of reality undergird this approach to music. So if you take words of Scripture, which have an absolute view of reality, and you wed them, to music forms that come out of a, uh, of a narcissistic or nihilistic existential concept of life, what are you doing? With your music form, you are saying something that is 180 degrees opposite to what your words are saying. And you create a tension. And so what's happening today in churches is they're saying, oh, to get people into church, to make them feel comfortable, we have to go over here and use their human viewpoint-centered, nihilistic, narcissistic music form so that they feel comfortable, and we have to compromise the gospel at basic philosophical presuppositional levels in order to get the unbeliever here. Going into this contemporary worship, because the underpinnings of it, the thoughts... The, the, um, the intellectual foundations of the music and the, and the, and the uh, uh, practices of this are compromising the gospel. And we see John not going to the Washington, D.C. of the day, to Jerusalem to confront people. He goes as far away from them as he can, and the people who are positive come. God always supplies the hearers. It's not up to the church to come up with salesmanship techniques and gimmicks that attract people. It's not up to you when you're witnessing and giving the gospel to people to try to find that one technique that's going to get that person to buy. That's using salesmanship in order to communicate the gospel and that's pure human viewpoint. That has nothing to do with the gospel. It's a reliance upon a technique and not upon the supernatural power of God the Holy Spirit who is the divine executive of salvation. So we have to keep our focus on the truth and on Scripture alone. And John is a great example of that. So they challenge him, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. He denies all of this and finally they say, well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. We have to go back to Jerusalem. We have to tell the, uh, the Pharisees in charge what you say about yourself. And in verse 23, he, has a quote, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, if we go back to Isaiah 40, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. God is addressing the nation. And He says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord. This is a preparation. The the view here is that the Lord's coming back at the end of of, uh, the tribulation, at the end of judgment, at the second advent, and prepare His way, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. So it's a, it's a prophecy related to the coming of Messiah. They know that that's what it refers to. And when John says this, he is identifying himself with that role of the one who is preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. He is not the Messiah. He is merely bearing witness of Him. We saw that back in verse 7. He came for a witness that He might bear witness of the life that all might believe through Him. So he is merely the means. Verse 24 tells us that these people were sent. They were sent out 
by, uh, by the Pharisees. And they go on and they say, now, why then? Okay, so you're not, the, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, you're not, um, uh, you're not the Messiah. Then why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What's going on here? Well, if you were not a Jew, if you're a Gentile, then according to rabbinic tradition, then the way you became a full-fledged member of Judaism was through baptism. So this was a rite or a ritual for non-Jews to signify that they were now identified with Judaism. Now this is the basic concept of baptism is identification. There are seven, eight maybe different baptisms in the New Testament. Some are dry. Most are dry. Uh, one, one, uh, one, the eighth one that I'm pretty sure is a baptism is referred to in First Peter. And it describes the... Uh, uh, it makes an analogy between baptism and what happened with those who went on the ark with Noah. Well, in that particular illustration of baptism, it was the ones who were dry who were saved. It's the ones who were wet that weren't saved. So that was a dry baptism. Baptism into Christ is a dry baptism. Most baptisms are dry. The significance is their identification with something in terms of something new. And John is in terms of his or in terms of Judaism, there was baptism that identified them with Judaism. But here John is out by the river Jordan and he's baptizing Jews. He's baptizing Jews. Why do they need to be uh, baptized. Now, water baptism was a ritual that signified cleansing. That's the picture of the water. It signifies cleansing and purification from sin and that sins have been dealt with in terms of judgment. Judgment always precedes uh, uh, grace, the judgment of sin. Christ judged sins on the cross. Therefore, we could have, have uh, uh, received the grace, the free gift of His salvation. We judge ourselves rightly lest we be judged that's grace so there is a certain judgment and this is what baptism signified the identification of the the Jew being baptized with uh, repentance and righteousness so he's baptizing and he has them uh, the Jewish religious leaders all upset by this and the point of their baptism was simply to show that their sins had been forgiven, that cleansing had taken place. So they say, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered him saying, notice how he sidesteps the issue. He doesn't answer the question. What he does is he shifts the attention to the person of Christ. I baptize by means of water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me. The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He says there is one in your group. Now, chronologically, what's happened already, because John the Apostle doesn't go into it, is Jesus comes down and you have the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Out here, God the Father says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon Jesus. Then Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and testing. And then at the end of that 40 days, which is going to be day number 2, starting in verse 29 of our scenario, day number 2, Jesus shows up again for His public presentation. This is His testing. The, the baptism is like the anointing in the Old Testament. You have this pattern. There's the anointing of the Messiah, the anointed one. And then there's a period where he proves objectively through his, his uh, victory over the enemy, his, uh, his right to be the anointed one. David's enemy was Goliath. Jesus, who is a type of Satan, Jesus defeats Satan and is victorious in the testing in the wilderness. So you have uh, his baptism with John and then he shows back up after 40 days for his presentation. So John's aware that Jesus is out there and he says, there's one who stands among you and this is my relationship to him. 
the thong of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, what does that mean? Well, we can pretty much guess that what that means is John has his, his, uh, has the right attitude towards Jesus. He has true, genuine humility. He recognizes his role and his place in terms of God's plan. But something more is going on here. We have to understand some background. John is a spiritual aristocrat. His father served in the temple. His mother was one of the daughters of Levi. They are spiritual aristocracy. He can trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron. John, on his own, in terms of his physical birth, could have been somebody of great power and prestige within the priestly hierarchy of his day. He has all the rights to be somebody. He can be great. Matthew 11.11 says that he is the greatest of men born among women to that point in time. He knows that his role in terms of God's plan for salvation as the forerunner of the Messiah makes him to be somebody. He could really go on an arrogance trip because of his background and his role. But he knows exactly what God's plan is for his life. And he is oriented to the grace of God. He's not self-absorbed. He's not concerned about not focusing on all of his talents because he knows everything he is is due to the grace of God. So he's grace-oriented, which is part of our humility, is part of grace orientation. He's focused on Christ and he operates on the faith rest drill. Now, just as an aside point, we need to realize that the person who is grace-oriented is always going to come into conflict with legalism and religion. Grace and law are antithetical to one another. And whenever you're around a legalist, if you're grace-oriented, sparks are going to fly eventually. Because the legalist wants to fit you in that tight little box, and as soon as they see somebody pick up a beer or light up a cigarette, or any number, of, or go dancing, or play cards, or go to a movie, um, they're going to just get all upset and immediately classify you as some kind of backslidden sinner. But those things have little if nothing to do with your spirituality. And that's what legalism wants to do. And legalism is always going to destroy grace orientation. That's its goal. But John demonstrates that he's grace-oriented. Now, there's a protocol here. According to the Mishnah, that every rabbi had a group of students, a group of disciples that gathered around him. And they couldn't pay this guy anything, so they functioned in terms of his servants. And they did jobs for him. They did all kinds of tasks for him. But there was one thing, according to the Mishnah, that they would not do. According to the protocol in the Mishnah, they could not loosen the thong on the sandal. That was the job of a slave. So the job of a slave was to loosen the thong of a sandal. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even good enough to be a slave to this guy. So he establishes the hierarchy. There's Jesus. There's his disciples who would do anything except untie untie a sandal. There's the slave who would untie a sandal. And I'm not good enough to be a slave. So we see his tremendous grace orientation and humility expressed here. And then... The last verse, the last thing we're told related to the first thing. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, I haven't said much about baptizing or the baptism of John the Baptist this morning because that involves a tremendous amount of information. And it relates to important doctrines, uh, the doctrines related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, the baptism, the believer's baptism, Uh, the whole issue of the tongues problem and speaking in tongues. And so we're going to take a little break from John next week to look in depth at the whole concept of baptism and the role of baptism and what the Bible says about baptism and specifically the, the baptism of John and his prophecy that the one who came after him would baptize with the Spirit and with fire. And that will be next Sunday morning. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You so much for this glimpse that we have into the life of our Lord and into the man who was His forerunner who announced the coming of the Messiah. Because we understand by this how You were working in history to fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament 
in, to bring them together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That by looking at the witness, the testimony of John the Baptist, we can see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life through His name. So, Father, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we give the opportunity to anyone here this morning who does not have a hope, an eternal hope, and a confidence that they will spend eternity with you as a saved believer. Father, that right now all they would have to do is accept Christ as their Savior. Forming words and thought alone, they would simply say, Father, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Faith alone in Christ alone. No works, no religious activity is required. Just simply accepting a free gift. So, Father, we thank you for this and for our so great salvation. In the name of our Savior, Amen.